0: Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Michael Carrion, Senior Pastor of Promised Land Covenant Churches in the North and South Bronx. The topic, how COVID-19 is impacting communities of color. Today's conversation is brought to you by Christian Community Credit Union, where faith and finances come together with mortgage rates so low now's the time to buy or refi christian community credit union is a purpose-driven financial partner where your money helps advance god's kingdom visit my slash nae to learn more that's my slash nae the credit union is an equal opportunity lender each account is insured up to $250,000. By member's choice, this institution is not federally insured. And now, let's join in.
1: I'm Walter Kim, here with Reverend Dr. Michael Carrion, the founding and senior pastor of Promise Land Covenant Churches in the North and South Bronx, and the founding chairman and superintendent of the Bronx Academy of Promise K-8 Charter School. Reverend Carrion serves as Vice President of Church Planting and Leadership Development for Redeemer City to City in New York City, and is the Regional Coach for Church Planting and Development for the Evangelical Covenant Church. He also serves on the board of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. Thanks for joining us today, Michael.
2: Thank you, uh, Walter, it's a pleasure to be here. Very honored uh, at the invitation and grateful to the Mm -hmm. Mm NAE. So Michael, as we begin, tell us
1: about your call into ministry and how you ended up at Promised Land Covenant Church.
2: Well that's a, that's a, I'll truncate that because that's a longer that's a real long narrative uh, but I, I am a, a product of the Assemblies of God uh, though I'm not with the AG anymore, uh, I was um, had a conversion experience in Teen Challenge in 1988, attended a Nikki Cruz outreach in New Haven, Connecticut and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, and that was the first day of of, of my entry into Team Challenge, which uh, you know was Christian drug rehabilitation program started by the late David Wilkerson, and one of his spiritual sons happens to be Nikki Cruz. And so uh, from there, I stood in the program, w- was was adopted into the assemblies, and uh, and made it through um, the leadership school, and uh, formed, forged, uh, even almost went into missions. Uh, at the end of that stint, but came back to New York City and uh, accepted a call to La Iglesia, La Gloria de Cristo, the Glory of Christ Church, which was a small, charismatic church in the uh, North Bronx uh, with the Latin American Council of Churches. And then after that, migrated to an Elam Fellowship Church, uh, where I served as associate pastor, and then uh, took an opportunity to go full-time ministry as the executive director of the second ministry started by david wilkerson uh urban youth alliance um or out of the third because the f- second one was christian urban renewal project in that context um we started a chapel service because we were servicing adjudicated youth uh in the south bronx Mott haven section and uh, that chapel turned into a church and then that church planted another church and then another church and then another we started planting churches throughout Institutions in uh, in the Bronx, so uh, drug programs, drug rehabilitation programs like Acacia, uh, Promesa, and the Northwest Bronx um, detention centers, uh, reintegration programming, and then uh, that chapel turned into Promised Land Church, uh, that then eventually turned into Promised Land Covenant Church. So it was a uh, that's a truncated thirty uh, year stint right there. But uh, been fortunate to serve in three churches over the last thirty years all in pastoral roles, and um, I'm now the general overseer uh, of Promised Land Churches in the North and South Bronx, and our charter school network, the Bronx Academy of Promise Charter School. Mm -hmm. So Miss Day for us wasn't just, uh, you know, preaching, teaching, and evangelism, but it was becoming incarnational and addressing the systemic social ills that we saw within our context in the South Bronx. And uh, yeah, we started about 17 years ago, and uh, to current date, uh this is where we are
1: wow thank you for sharing the history of how the lord has led you and clearly you've witnessed the gospel in its um, multifaceted expressions yes uh, and that's very powerful thank you um you know you you mentioned being there in the bronx and your church uh this network of churches has been at the heart of the u.s coronavirus uh, pandemic and uh, give us a snapshot um, of specifically your church and the community in which it sits?
2: Well, we're in the poorest congressional district in the city, um, uh, the South Bronx, and uh, which were our launching pattern where we're still thriving with the majority of our ministries, including our charter schools. And so, um, you know, it's, it's the poorest of the poor. Uh, there is a poverty level in New York State that says, Poverty is, is at this level, um, and the people that live in our community are 200% below poverty. Let me say that again, Walter, so that it's not a mistake. There's the poverty line, right, according to median income. Our people are 200% below that. And so it is a multicultural church. We're not a Spanish-American, though I am uh, of Afro-Latino heritage. Our church is comprised of African-American Dominican, Central American, Caribbean, South American, Mexican, um, uh, Pan African. Uh, We are a multicultural community. Uh, Our primary uh, congregant is someone that lives under that 200% below poverty level status. And, um, you know, we have white collar and blue collar. Not everyone in our community is impoverished, but most are. And, uh, you know, we consider ourselves a missional church. And so we function and we think and we express ourselves in those in those regards. Uh, Mission means movement. And so we are all over the South Bronx uh, loving the unlovable and touching the untouchable. I mean, that's how we uh, see a crystallized call to be the the church. And so the COVID virus happens, launches, and, you know, the narrative was out um, that it would be uh, targeting at first these more more mature states folks Uh, The persons that are a little bit more up in age. So, you know, the first wave of info was watch the elderly, watch those that are. uh, But that wasn't our experience, Walter. When the COVID dropped in April, uh, well, really before that, it was really the first in like February, but we didn't catch it, unbrenounced to us, until March, April. And then that was just it. It just just hit us left and right. Primarily because our people are underserved, under-resourced, and have no access they're the unhealthiest. They're the most damaged by um, uh, asthma and respiratory issues in the city. Uh, they're impoverished, illiteracy, you know, social ill, it runs rampant. So all of that to say the backdrop and context of this pandemic hits our community in context while there was already other types of storms and tsunamis that were hitting us. So doing ministry in a context like that is very complex. Now COVID hits. And so, as you can imagine, this brought us to our knees.
1: So did these uh, diagnoses, and did the deaths um, happen around the same time? How did this specifically unfold
2: oh, in sure. your community? I had just returned from speaking at a conference, and we were getting, well, I was in Orlando, Florida, and I was coming back to New York from the Exponential Conference. And I, I, uh, I, I landed, I went home, and I started hearing all of this, you know, it, hadn't, it wasn't real to me as of yet. And then, uh, say on a Wednesday, I got a phone call from our, from our principal, listen, COVID just hit the school. And I said, what hit the school? COVID. And uh, unfortunately, our first casualty was not, was not a, a, an adult, it was a child uh, who had stated that they, their, their side had hurt. Uh, and the mom takes her, her baby boy, 11-year-old, to the hospital. And uh, two days later, he's gone, Walter. Two days later, he's gone. So uh, they call the school, then I call, as of, as of course, we're a very tight, we have eight hundred, almost 1,000 kids, uh, but you know it's a real tight-knit community, uh, and uh, I mean, to, to deal with that. You know, I, I'm seminary graduate, then post-grad work, uh, seminaries prepared me for a lot, but it did not prepare me to deal with that. Uh, and it broke me to hear this woman screaming and crying compounded with the fact that the siblings of this young man are in second, third, and fourth, fifth grade in our school. The very next day after he passes Walter, all of his siblings report to the virtual classroom. And when the teachers, our teachers ask them, why, why don't you take time off? No, this is what our brother would want. Hmm. That broke me, man. That broke awful. So if that wasn't bad enough, the next day I go sleep. I I barely can sleep. The next day, early in the morning, I get a phone call, uh, and then we get our first adult uh, casualty and it's one of the mothers of our church who started with us founded uh, co-founded the church and I just started screaming I mean you could hear me screaming outside uh, as I was no no this this can't be Um, and that was about April 4th 5th and then after that every other day Walter it was a call it was a call my father's in the hospital my mother's we had one scenario where the mother had passed away the father was going into ICU, and now the older, mature son has it. Entire families, uh, and you know, social distancing isn't a reality in the on the margin space. And so, people are living on top of each other. You know, you have project buildings. There's 19 floors. There's two elevators. There's two staircases. There's no such thing as social distancing in a situation like that. And so, these people are using the same elevator, same stairs. The entire building is getting it. Um, and so it's it's just horrible. And the, the 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 more impoverished communities, that's how they live, very close together. This is a city, it's very dense, and it's it's, it's it was very difficult. So one death after another. At one point, Walter, uh, I, I was scared to pick up the phone, because I I, I, I didn't want to. I couldn't, you know. And then the entire month of April, I felt like I didn't sleep, because I could. These are people you marry. These are people that you bury, that you baptize. I didn't have the opportunity to hug them, to embrace them, to say goodbye. I've got leaders in our church saying, I just kissed my dad, and now he's just gone. And so how do, you, how do you, you know, and then compound, insult to injury, if you want to use that as a frame, people were dropping off their loved ones at hospitals, and they were so overwhelmed that the, the person would pass an ICU, and then they could not find the remains, so now people are losing their loved ones that they just got word passed, and it takes two or three days to find them because of the overrun uh, morgue within the hospital, um, and that's been the pattern. That's been the pattern. We've not been doing a good job in advertising it, but what hit national news uh, recently was there was a, a funeral parlor had two U-haul trucks, literally. I mean, if you can imagine this, two U-haul trucks with a hundred remain, hundred people uh, remains of people in the U-Haul truck, because there was no more any f- room in the freezer. And the funeral parlor was totally packed out. People are dropping off caskets and putting it in front of the funeral parlor. Um, funeral parlors overrun. They just, is so, and then we're seeing things that we haven't seen in like 100 years, um, just, 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 just I've never seen anything like it. And, and it, it was so heartbreaking. You would think in all of our technology and all of our knowing. We would have been more prepared for this. But this thing came in so quickly, and we were so lackadaisical with it. And, the you know, call it Western ignorance, call it whatever you want. But this thing came in, and it just hit us. And uh, 15 people have, have died in our church. And um, and the report that came out initially was 13, two more passed after that. And we still have people that are sick. Some Many are recovering now. So there's a resilience. There's a resilience happening, you know um people are getting healthier masks and and social distancing shelter in place is helping but but walter it's uh, it's it, it, unbelievable unbelievable
1: my, michael um as a fellow pastor as a fellow christian as a fellow human being my heart breaks along with you and what your church has endured what your community has endured. Uh, I I truly am heartbroken over that. And yet, this this moment is is not just isolated to this moment. It's actually connected to long-term inequalities in our country. Absolutely. How do you process that? You know, how how does this COVID-19 expose in your mind the, the inequalities?
2: Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, this has been, in one respect this has been the great equalizer because we're all suffering the same issue if you're in the in the new york city uh context or you're an epicenter anyone that's dealing with this disease the way we are across the globe we are in the same space with some similar tensions but i would say on one side is the equalizer on the other side it has revealed very clearly and succinctly that there is a tale of two cities there's a tale of two churches There's the majority dominant culture, which was able to seamlessly has less casualties, less issues, less um, economic tsunami uh, uh, ramifications than the other city or the other church that has high death toll, high positive uh, diagnoses, and massive layoffs. So the economic inequality is blatant and clear. It is, it is absolutely clear that there's the, the blessed, and then there's the not blessed, or on the side, and you get what you get. Most of the people that are in our communities are frontline workers, they're working triage, those that are still working. The other thing is that, you know, in our context, and this is in any urban c- context across, the, I think, the globe, right? If a church doesn't meet physically, a church doesn't eat Because this is how the transaction of tithes and offerings, revenue, income, in-kind donations, helps and develop a church. There are churches that are decimated now because of this. One, because of the digital divide. You would think there wouldn't be one. But there are people that have a smartphone but aren't smart enough to use it to turn it into a vehicle to create create a virtual experience. We've seen that amongst the most elderly. We've seen that amongst, in particular, the African-American churches that are older, more institutionalized. That's another thing, the institutionalized church, uh, the more set uh, in its ways, uh, you know, come on to me, not 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 reach out to them type of uh, paradigm, those churches are getting hit and they may not open. Uh, and so the inequality of the of, of ecclesial uh, inequality, uh, the inequality economically, and, and even the statistics show, when you look at, and I'm not saying this because I love the borough of Manhattan, I live in the city, it's not the same numbers. If you look at the statistics even put out this morning by the New York Times, you'll see that the, 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 there's very low uh, uh, casualties and fatalities. When you look at Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, and the poor pockets, very, very high. So there's a big difference in how people receive resource, and that's clear. And the decisions to how those resources are dished out. Is a legislative issue, and so the church is going to take a prophetic stance and how to speak to this because it's not socio-political or social gospel issue. It's a theological issue. And we are to, we're model Day, We should be caring for the poor. We cannot have a selective hermeneutic about Matthew 25, right? He says, he says, when you came to me, right? He said, he says, um, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me, right? People want to take the text, speak, talk about the the goats and the and the sheep. And forget the fact that, you know, he wants us to love the the foreigner and the refugee. Clearly, you see a huge gap uh, in that regard. So there's a lot of room for the church to grow. And I don't think we're going to go back to church as usual, Walter. This has decimated, I think, and deconstructed paradigms at a level where we have to rethink our ecclesiology and our missiology. I think the micro movement, the minimalist movement, the first century paradigm in the book of Acts, that's where the church is going to be at post-COVID. Uh, mm. We can get to post-COVID. Uh, mm. You know, just just, just just, my thoughts on that. But yeah, oh. to your question, the inequalities are, are, are tangible, very visible.
1: Thank you, Michael, for sharing some of these um, prophetic thoughts. Very insightful. And The long-term ramifications. Uh, what do you think are some of the long-term ramifications on communities of color? You've mm. already mentioned some of the, the need for change, mm-hmm. microchurch changes of uh, theological perspective, ecclesiology, and so forth. Are there other long-term issues on communities of color that you want to bring our attention
2: to? Absolutely. I think that we're going to have to really look at our educational system. You know, we are involved with the district, the US Department of Education. Our charter school, thanks be to God, is a, is a high performing, one of the, the, the top performing, in the poorest communities. To God be the glory for that. But when you think about how the USDOE responded to the virtual learning need in light of not being able to gather at the schools, education is the key and the bridge over much of the social ills we see amongst the impoverished. And if there's going to be any reform needed, it's in that area. Now, I will say to you, I give, and I'm on the mayor's task force for the city of New York, and so I, I give much credit to our chancellor and to our mayor and to our governor for from one day to another going virtual. But it further, it further uh, insinuated and, 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 and exposed, the system was broken. There weren't enough computers to be handed out. There weren't enough resources to be handed. There wasn't enough planning. There wasn't enough communication. And so if we're gonna move the impoverished to economic sustainability, right? Just talking economics, we're gonna have to have a better educational reform uh, also, social distancing. What does that look like? That is a that is a category of privilege, because it's not a category for the for the for those who are living in projects and New York City Housing Authority. So, what does that look like? We're gonna have to rethink social connection. We're gonna have to rethink how we do life. Um, I don't think we're ever gonna take off the mask. I don't. Th- I think the mask is gonna be part of our new norm, and um, especially amongst the poor. And I think. There's going to come a stigmatism that comes with that. There's already uh, tensions about the mask. Some don't want to wear it. Some do. Well, we want to live, so we're going to wear the mask. Um, I think that there also is going to have to be a huge, a huge movement for the church to take its place prophetically when it comes to the, the, the governing policies, senators and governors and so on, that are moving us to, to, to open up sooner than we're ready to open up. My concern in my context, if they open up the city too soon, we're going to see a resurgence of this virus that will kill many. That's not the one that they were talking about. The second surge so it should be coming in flu season. We're going to create an, a third resurgence of this virus if we start to gather too quickly. So we've got to rethink how we do politics, how we do gathering, how we do education. Our entire system is going to get u hauled because of this amongst the Black and the Latinos and those on the, on the margins, in my opinion. Hmm.
1: Michael, you've uh, shared how the experience in the Bronx is different from the experience in Manhattan, uh, and I want to expand that out to the country. Uh, There are people listening in different parts of the country with vastly different experiences, some likewise devastated, others who for the most part have not experienced anything remotely like what you've experienced. Are there ways Christians can identify with brothers and sisters who are facing greater hardships. What, what would be meaningful for you uh, to know or hear from churches, church leaders, whose experiences have actually been much more stable and secure?
2: I would say please look at some of the real news that's out there. Look at denominations like the Church of God in Christ. 30 of their bishops were taken out by this virus, right? 30 of their bishops. 30 of their bishops that live in African-American communities and do African-American um the socialization in their context. Church to because it's a traditional African American denomination and a pioneer, look at that, the ramifications of that. Look at the New York Lutheran Synod, right? Who lost a hundred members in one church alone from this? There is statistical data that proves even though you don't see it in your community, there's nobody wearing masks in your community, please research. And if you don't trust any news media Call these denominations yourself and seek first to understand before you dismiss this as, uh, 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 you know, some sort of ploy from the left to move, you know, the center or whatever. You know, do the research and seek first to understand. You know, the Bible teaches us we mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. And And a Christian, a believer of any, no matter what your culture, this is what the Bible calls us to be a people of love. And so how could we not weep with the mother with Rachel who will not be comforted because her children are no more? How can we be okay with babies dying from this from this disease? How could we be okay with with with, with family members getting lost in the system? How could we be okay with this? We should, we're not supposed to be okay as the people of God. Uh, and this is how you will know us, our love for one another. I don't have to understand you um, uh, uh, and be in your place to 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 mourn and to lament loss with you, right? Um, and and I think that you know I'm of Latino heritage, and and you have a different heritage, uh, Walter. If you cut both of us, we're both going to bleed red. Imago day, looking at each other, please remember, please remember uh, that we are all made in the image of God, and we should we should be concerned with all who suffer the Bible teaches us this, Jesus teaches us this. And so that would be my admonition, research, look it up. It's, it's not just one pocket, it's not just New York City, it's all over the globe. And that's in one way I think I was equalized us. there's a lot of research you can learn and get that would give you context uh, to, to better engage with those uh, who are suffering while you're not. And I would also caution this Walter, I think this is important to say, this is a moving disease this migrates eventually it will get to you It, it and it's indiscriminate it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how old you are how young you are this is what i've seen in my in my admission context this is an indiscriminate disease it will get you wherever you are so it just hasn't gotten there yet be ready be prepared
1: in the course of this conversation you've touched on a range of things that um This pandemic has really unearthed in terms of inequalities and challenges. Uh, What are some of the practical ways in which your church is responding to the emotional and mental health issues uh, within your church and community?
2: Praise be to God. You know, I come from an extensive social uh, work background. Uh, and I have a theology, of therapy, Walter, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so for the last several months, for the last nine weeks, 10 weeks, we've had uh, CSWs, LMSWs, therapists, uh, crisis and grief loss counselors come in, speak to our entire leadership, speak to our entire congregation, and unpack a theology of grief, loss, and times of uncertainty, right? I have been intentional about having practitioners and licensed credentialed Social work therapists come in to help us own our emotions. We have a tendency, especially within the evangelical community, to hurry up and keep moving. You we know, go, we want to be supermen and women in the faith, and we can't. We've got to learn what lament is. We've got to own our trauma, own our emotions. God gave us emotions to process. We can sometimes become super religious, right, and then run through in the name of Jesus. No, no, you can't do that. You have got to process what you're going through. So I would say uh, what we've done is we've been intentional, and I would say it's going to take an interdisciplinary approach to bring and nurse the church back to health. Lectio Divina, the sacred text, as well as social theory that helps us, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, that helps us own and then move and then mature as we allow Christ to live through us, as we're letting him mold us, as he's the potter and we're the clay. Um, And a lot of churches traditionally have challenges with that. They think, just pray it out. Wait a minute. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, there are certain things that you can pray out, but there are certain things you have to talk about and process. And in the process, you get healing. In the process, you get deliverance. In the process, you get transformation. And so that's what we've seen. People have gotten strong. They haven't gotten better, Walter, but they have gotten stronger in our church. In the backdrop since we started that series of creating a missional, healthy culture in a context of pandemic.
1: That is uh, amazing to hear the ways in which you're engaging the whole person yes, with this power of the gospel. It's amazing, but uh, it's got to be exhausting. Oh I mean, what has it been like for you and other pastors at your church to minister during challenging times like this?
2: Well, I'll tell you, you know, and I stated this at one point, I felt the first two weeks, Walter, I, 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 I've never suffered from depression, so I didn't know how to name it. I didn't know what it was, but I had this like dark cloud just come upon me and I felt like I was choking and Walter, I, I didn't sleep. I, I couldn't sleep no matter what, you know, and I, I started to feel guilty because uh, I couldn't function the way traditionally seminaries teach us to love our people, to love our parish, to be amongst our folks. We can't do any of that. The traditional methodology of love and support, the, the ministry of presence, I couldn't provide that. And so I felt inadequate. I felt like a failure and I had to go to therapy. You know, every great social worker has a social worker that they speak to, that they process with. And I'm in the evangelical covenant church. I'm a member of the ordered ministry. I'm a covenant pastor. And so ultimately, you know, I have a spiritual director. I connect with that person often and I throw up on them. And then I have a therapist out of Alliance School of Therapy, uh, Alliance School of Counseling, a professor mentor that knows me for 30 years has mentored me and doesn't respect me that much. This is the key with therapy. You got to get a therapist that doesn't respect you, Walter. You know what I'm saying? So they don't, you know, I'm not Reverend Dr. Anybody to him. I'm Mike. And he says, Mike, you're selfish. You're self-centered. You're struggling. Da, 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 you know, you need somebody to talk to you straight. And so real therapy gives you, you leave broken, and beat up, in a different way but in a good way. And so that's been that's what's gotten us through. All of us. Matter of fact, we then we applied for a grant, we got a grant, praise be to God. Now all of our pastors have free therapy sessions with counselors. And we're we're mandating that. They've got to talk to somebody because we're all out on the trenches. Most of our pastors are frontliners. I think all pastors are frontliners, but but specifically some of them work in the hospitals. And so it's been draining. It's been hard. I I am now coming. It's now. For the last two weeks, I'm able to sleep through the night, Walter. Mm -hmm. Now, over the last two weeks, I can sleep through the night and not wake up like, uh, you know, broken. Mm -hmm. But it's been draining. No seminary class that I ever took that was uh, no professors ever prepared. And how could they? The last time something like this happened was 100 years ago. It wouldn't, you know, you cannot you cannot tell a person who just lost their baby. Redaction criticism will help you with this. Mm. Exegesis, how, you know, that, 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 that's, you can't appropriate that, you know, and I didn't have the construct, the theological construct to meet because I myself was in shock. That's the complexity about this, Walter. You've got to provide care while you're caring for yourself. Truly, I understand Nguyen when he speaks about wounded healers. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, I took that class to product up Professor Ramadan. now I understand Nguyen when he speaks about we are wounded healers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's what we are. And so, yeah.
1: Michael, as you were talking, wounded healers, uh, that was exactly the phrase going through my head as you were just talking. And so to hear you use that term. That's powerful. So you've talked about the need uh, for processing. You yourself have gone through that. Uh, Clearly, you're encouraging your staff and other pastors to go through that. Are there other practical tips that you would give uh, to those in leadership who themselves are experiencing vicarious trauma?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would say talk about it. One thing that we've noticed uh, in our sessions is that if you come from a family of origin where there was already underlying trauma that was never dealt with, that resurges in this. It almost awakens things. And a lot of our folks have been articulating that sort of, I didn't realize, but now I know and now I own. So any, any leader that's providing trauma or experiencing that, find a place to center, find a person to speak to, find a place to rest. You know, pastors, we never punch in, we never punch out. We just don't. We just keep going. We're so unhealthy. We are so unhealthy, Walter. We don't know how to turn it off. We don't know how to read our Bibles without finding a sermon for them. we got to find a sermon for us. And in this time, your devotional time and place before God, this is where you find restoration and the shadow of the Almighty. you got to get into the shadow. And in the shadow, there's a therapist, the Holy Spirit. And surrender. And I'm not talking about religiosity, I'm talking about surrender and talk to somebody, and then look for joy. You know, I've seen weeping enduring, Walter. I'm looking for joy. I'm looking for joy in the stories and the narratives of churches that are experiencing revival. I'm looking for joy in the narratives of churches that are rethinking and reimagining their church, their ecclesiology, and launching missional communities. I am finding joy in people getting out of the ICU and off of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the breathing tube. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for joy in people getting jobs. And we're in the middle of a depression. And um, the church is hurting. The church is bruised in New York. Everybody's hungry. Uh, this this weekend, we're going to be putting out, uh, we got a small grant, we're putting out thousands of dollars of food, just because people are hungry, Walter, families, and uh, it's, 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 fighting, it's fighting the trauma, but it's also fighting the economic, fighting the reality of, how do you find peace when you're physically fighting a virus, and then you're worried about being evicted, and then you're worried about feeding your children, and then you're worried about you better, get into, you better get into the shadow of the Most High. You better find refuge in God and stay connected. That's the other thing. We isolate. I would encourage people who have suffered trauma, connect, connect, connect. Accountability, 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 connect.
1: Amen. You know, it, it it's clear that you are developing a theology of suffering in real time here. Yeah. So how would you give to us your understanding of hope, your theology, your ecclesiology in this time of deep suffering?
2: I would say that everything that I just stated gives me hope just a little bit more, a little injection of hope. I know that God's providential reign is secure. I know that I can sit in confidence that though my body fail, my soul, my spirit is in the hands of Jesus forever. I have this assurance, this blessed assurance, that what God has said to me is true. And let God be true and every man a liar. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. What has kept me through this, what has kept me in 30 years of ministry and the poorest congressional district in the United States has been, I have seen too many resurrections by the hand of God not to believe that he, can, he can't get me through this season. My hope has been when I look behind me and I think about my mother went to, to jail for seven years and my father went to jail for 22 years, and I worked in the same jail that my parents served in. That's hope. That's resurrection power. When I think about my own addictions and he saved me and delivered me, I remember the God that freed me from my Egypt, and that's hope. He is the God that's above all, in all. And even this, no matter how ugly and horrific it seems, will work together for good because he is hope. So I've not always been able to see him and hear him in this season, but I hear him and see him here. Mm. And I remember when I have fallen to pieces, Walter, and I have done that a lot lately. When I've fallen to pieces, I remember where I was. I remember the mercies extended to me. I remember my father's last breath when he says, I know to whom I have trusted my soul. When my mother says, I'm going with Jesus. I remember the faith of my father. I remember the faith of those before me. That's my hope. That's my hope.
1: Michael, thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart in this way. I want to conclude by just saying a word of blessing. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Our guests on today's conversation has been Rev. Dr. Michael Carrion, Senior Pastor of Promised Land Covenant Churches in the North and South Bronx. I'm Walter Kim and on behalf of us all very special thanks to Michael.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent Evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.